welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome again to the Nook. It's that time of week once again for Tales to Terrify. I will be your host, Stephen Kilpatrick. Come on in. The first hints of autumn are here, and we will make sure you have some of that fall cider in the weeks to come. For now, pour yourself something to drink. Find a comfortable place to settle in. This evening, from Sylvia Schultz, we have Lights Out. This edition's theme is haunted houses. Who doesn't love haunted houses? Oh, well, maybe some of the people that live in them. Then again, I'm sure there are a few Caspers as well as a few Amityvilles. This lights out is a bit longer than usual, coming in at just a smidge under an hour. Following that will be tonight's fiction. You'll be hearing Alan Baxter's Not the Worst of Sins. Before we dive into all of that, a bit of business. First of all, two weeks ago we had an interview with M.F. Wall, also a couple of vignettes from her new serialized novel, Disease. That was M.F. Wall. The author brought it to my attention that I had kicked off the podcast by getting it right and then screwed it up later. Not only was I incorrect, I was inconsistently incorrect. And to make matters worse, it was while I was promoting the contest to give away a few copies of Disease while using a hashtag with the author's erroneous name. Fortunately, the author counted all of the misspelled hashtags as valid entries. Congratulations to the winners, by the way. Second item of business, Tales to Terrify and all of our neighbors are a labor of love. Although the folks here at the Nook do prefer the lights to be kept low, we still have to pay to keep them on. So, for the next month, I'll be adding in quick requests for a bit of money. Don't worry, I won't go into some sort of guilt trip about how you're getting something for nothing. So how about some money? Or a lengthy list of all of the great stories that we've managed to narrate and get out into your earbuds that wouldn't have been possible without donations. Ah, shoot. I suppose I did just do both of those things. Well, I won't do that anymore. So... How do you get money to us, you ask? On TalesToTerrify.com, in the upper right-hand corner are links to either a one-time donation or, better still, a monthly subscriber. The links go to PayPal, and the denomination is in English sterling, but PayPal handles all of the conversion rates for our listeners in the U.S. of A., or Ireland, or New Zealand, hello, John Key, or anywhere else that horrific stories are told in English. Are understood. Third, we're looking for an editor. Just as last week, I'll have a summary of what the editor does, and if you're interested in the position or have additional questions, just send us an email at tales to terrify at gmail.com. Now, that's all out of the way. Here is Sylvia Schultz with Lights Out. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Lights Out. I'm your host, Sylvia Schultz. I did not grow up in a haunted house. 
As much as I adored true ghost stories when I was a little kid, I don't think my nerves could have stood it. I'm really kind of a big chicken at heart. Besides, I am about as sensitive as a brick. Someone could be following me around carrying their own severed head, and I'd be oblivious. But other folks aren't so lucky. There are people who live with the weird on a day-to-day -day basis, people who share their homes with the unknown. Some of these people were kind enough to tell me their stories. I'm going to let them do most of the talking for this show. Carl Jones teaches a class at Lincolnland Community College on the paranormal called Ghosts, Hauntings, and the Unexplained. One semester, Carrie Rudis was one of his students. During one meeting of Prairieland Paranormal Consortium, Carrie and her son Joey shared their experiences. Their story ended up being aired on American Hauntings on A&E. We moved into our house 18 years ago. He wasn't even born yet. He's my baby. Um, we had a four-year-old and a one-year-old child. And the house had been in my family for many years, probably since the 50s. My dad and his six siblings were raised there. And uh, we bought the house for my uncle. And we were all excited. It was a big five-bedroom house, you know, all this room. And I told my four-year-old son where his room would be upstairs. And uh, he went up there all excited. And he comes back down and he said, I'm not sleeping up there. And I said, why not? He said, well, there's a ghost up there. And I thought, yeah, right, you know, he's four. <laughs> so anyway, I didn't, you know, pay too much attention to that, but uh, it wasn't long and things started happening. And if I recall, the first thing that happened was one of the first nights we stayed there, um, we woke up and the front door was wide open and the coffee pot was on. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, that's weird. And our doors, we always locked our doors, and it had deadbolt locks. So there's no way the kids could have reached it, you know. And it just progressed from there. We would hear footsteps. Um, we would hear voices. We would see shadows. We would hear a woman crying. We would hear a woman singing sometimes. And I worked midnights a lot back then and there were many mornings I would come home and my husband had been up all night because he thought somebody was in our house that somebody had broke in you know and there was nobody there so the kids would not sleep upstairs while they were young they slept in the spare bedroom downstairs next to us um, but there really wasn't anything threatening it was just activity so you know we could deal with it um, they were pretty young. Well, obviously, he was born while we lived there. And they would see things, too. I remember Joey saying, you know, there's somebody in there. And I'm like, where? And he'd say, don't you see? There's somebody in there. Do you remember some of that? Not really? Some of it. Um, do you remember waking up and seeing a little girl yeah. crying in your room? Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of that that went on. And my mom would babysit sometimes. And I hired babysitters when I worked, and they were always scared. They always had something happen, or they would see something. And luckily, they were good about it and never quit, but, you know, they would get afraid a lot. 
So we lived with this, you know, and it was okay till about three or four years ago. Um, the kids were all teenagers then, all three of them, and it started getting mean. We would get, we would hear growling. Um, we would get scratches. We would wake up with bruises and scratches. My daughter actually looked like a human bite on her. So, you know, I said, we can't live with this. So I had psychics come in and try and get rid of it. I had investigators from St. Louis come in and try and get rid of it, and it didn't work. So finally, I happened to stumble upon a website online. Um, it was through A&E. They were wanting to find families that needed help um, with their paranormal experiences. So I emailed, ended up being a producer, and she did, I didn't think anything would happen, you know. I just thought, you know, I gotta try and find something to help. And she ended up calling us, and she came out, and we didn't even know if it would be a show just yet, because they have to make the pilot, they have to sell it to the network, but she guaranteed me that regardless, they would bring in the experts that could help us. So we agreed to do this. And it was a pretty long process, and they come out several times and filmed. We had surveillance cameras up for weeks, which at first was weird, but you actually do get used to it after a while. You kind of forget they're there. And we did actual filming where they would bring in crews because we did our own reenacting, and they said that was a new concept. Um, the things that had happened before I contacted them, they had us reenact, recreate. And that was kind of hard because we're not actors, you know. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing, so, you know. But it was a learning experience. Um, sometimes we had 12-hour filming days, so like 2 in the morning, you know. So it, it was, I mean, it was work. But they did bring in a psychic, a shaman, a medium, and an exorcist eventually. And what was there that was menacing is now gone. It's made a huge difference in our lives and in our house. And they told us that the regular ghosts that were there did not like this being either, that it, it tried to control them also. And I believe it because um, the first night that it was gone, I could hear it sounded like somebody running upstairs, uh, like kids, and we do have a little girl ghost. We've all seen her. And I hadn't heard that in a while since this. It was almost like she was happy, you know. Um, there's also a little boy spirit. There's a woman, and she's been seen. And there's apparently an old man that's kind of crabby. He likes to hang out in the basement. And uh, he doesn't mind us, but he doesn't like it when we're like, Remodeling something that kind of aggravates him, but he's pretty pretty harmless. Um, and the the bad spirit, they were never able to really tell us what it was. They just said it was negative. They didn't know how it got to be there, and uh, we would see it when it was there. It was very tall and like a dark figure, and it actually had yellow eyes. And it was very. I saw it one time. And, I mean, that's the most afraid I think I've ever been. 
and uh, the growling we would hear that frequently too while it was there and that's gone now but uh, the history the house used to be a boarding house it's very old and the train tracks go right by our house and there used to be a train station there and it used to be a boarding house there were rumors that it used to be a brothel also so it, it does have a lot of history been a lot of people in and out there um, but anyway were they able to say figure out who the children were or why they were there not while they were why they were there for sure but they did find some history of a little girl being hit by a train right close there and they're wondering if that wasn't her and she has old clothes you know you've seen her too haven't you yeah she's got the no, she's old stuff. yeah she is really yeah. are you okay with the other spirits the ghosts there. yeah the ghosts we didn't mind you just you just know once in a while you'll hear a door will close or something will move or you'll see something but it's more of a peaceful coexistence yeah it's not menacing so they probably want to keep or else they got to be used to us by now i think <laughs> you, you, when you had to get rid of the evil thing you didn't have them get rid of the other students. They asked us, and we said, you know, I don't want them to be trapped, because I think that would be horrible, but I don't want to force them out. I said, you know, tell them they're free to go if they want to, and they said they didn't They didn't want to leave. Okay. Yeah, the, the evil thing, when you saw it, the eyes, the only detail you think the was just a black shape. It was just... Actually, I was in the house. My daughter slept on the couch for years because she was so terrified of her room. And many nights she was waking me up to come out there and sleep too because of the things that be going on, you know, and she was scared. So it was one of those nights and I was laying on the love seat and there we have a stained glass window with regular glass in the middle straight across. And one of the things that would happen, you'd hear sound like somebody stomping on that porch and then jiggle on the door. And we were hearing that. And I happened to look up and I saw this dark figure through that window and it like looked at me and it was just yellow glowing eyes. It wasn't like there were pupils or anything. It was just bright. And I just froze because I thought, oh my God, does it see me? If it doesn't, I better not move or it will, you know? And I was just so, I was just so scared. And then it was just gone. But you've seen the tall shadows too. I was yeah. going to ask you to just uh, actually a nice picture they have on Facebook of you. Um, <laughs> you were quoted as saying that you feared that this, these things or this thing had the potential to kill somebody. Have you ever been physically? There threatened? has been people physically like attacked attacked in our household. I've actually even had objects literally thrown at me, and that's actually on film. It will probably be on the show. I will say the situation in the household probably started escalating when we started dabbling with Ouija boards and seances. That did not help. That did not help. <laughs> 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 no. And we had people shoved. You were shoved. Shoved. My brother was like shoved across the room into a wall at our house. I've woken up with like random scratches on my face. And legs. Yeah, legs. And yeah, I've, I've had the scratches. That hasn't happened since this. Not since then. So how long has it been since they came in and helped clear away the spirit? 
It was last August when they got rid of, when so they brought the exorcist. Yes. Okay. yes. Which person do you think was the one that got rid of it? Was it like a shaman? Or the exorcist. The exorcist. The shaman, when she came, it, she got rid of it for a while, and she said that she thought it might try and come back, and it did. And we knew when it come back, you could just feel the house felt so different. And when it, things were escalating and getting really bad, you could feel it was almost like it would go through you. You would feel this sudden anger and just, it, 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 would, it was like something mean went through you. I don't know how else to describe it. And it's like, luckily it only lasts a second because it was nothing like I had ever felt. And I think we all experienced it at some point. It, it was really strange. And it would mimic us too. It got where it would do that. Um, like the kids would see me walk outside and it, it wasn't me, you know. And Joey had one night where it was trying to get in his room and it was trying to sound like me, it was saying, Joey, open the door, and he knew it wasn't me. Yeah. So it, it was very, it got to be very, very scary. It's a fascinating case because I've heard of this before and we've run, run into it once or twice, but the, the negative energy was trying to control the other ghosts in the house. Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds like it was somewhat successful Yeah. because the other ghosts in the house were not necessarily negative energies by any means. They no, were just they ghosts, weren't. they were just hanging out there. Mm -hmm. But it was, they didn't like it either. No. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. So when that thing was around, the activity with the other spirits of the home ceased pretty much? It or? didn't cease, but it decreased. It, it was almost like they were kept back yeah. or whatever. Wow. Um, I know there was one day when my husband, we were talking about that, and my husband said, you know, I wonder about that little girl, you know? And he actually saw her right after that, and we wondered if she wasn't trying to tell us, you know, help, you know? Yeah. We could probably pray. Yeah. We could tell the difference because all the paranormal activities are hostile. Like, yeah. we could tell it's something else that we were feeling. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could just feel, it just felt so negative, yeah, in there, yeah. Tensions running high. And there were some nights when, like, none of us got any sleep because of everything going on and the kids upstairs they eventually did the boys would sleep upstairs eventually my daughter didn't until this thing was gone but uh they said they would hear it sound like something scratching all over the walls and all kinds of I've actually woken up in the middle of the night feeling being choked by something that happened more than once that actually happened like during the period when they were filming that's when things really got mad. Yeah, I think it kind of got mad for a while while they were filming. Yeah. They didn't stir anything up. Did anything happen while they were filming? Oh, yeah. They, they got chased out of the house twice. Did they? Yeah. Film crew also. Yeah. Now, they filmed during the while the negativity was still there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So it wasn't until after the filming was done that they were able to get rid of it? Well, um, they, we did a little bit of filming in February of last year, and they come back and did a little more in May. They did the majority of it in August, and at the towards the end of it was when they brought in the exorcist and got rid of it, and then they come back for touch-ups after it was gone. Did they film part of the exorcism? 
Yes. We weren't allowed in the house for most of it, but we got to come in towards the end. I bet you kept his number on file. I have him on Facebook. I do. Did they give you any tips on keeping it away? Um, They didn't, but the shaman did. She gave us, like, candles and prayers, and, of course, Joey knows all about that stuff. He researches. He has the smudging sage and all that stuff. He's... I go to him if I feel there's something. Can you come back next month? I'm always interested in how much they exaggerate. Yeah. Really yeah. Really yeah. I'll well, try to. Yeah. Make sure you come back at least next I will. month. Yeah. yeah. So, no idea where this one came from. We just kind of show. Well, I have an idea, and I don't know how the rest of them felt about it. Um, when I was a teenager. My best friend, who is now my sister-in-law, ended up marrying her brother, but that was before I knew him. Anyway, her parents bought a house in Hillsboro, and it was haunted, and we were like 16, and we thought, oh, cool, you know, whatever. So we used the Ouija board, which I didn't even believe in ghosts then, honest, I didn't, and Kelly was her name. She's like, let's use a Ouija board and talk to the ghosts. My mom and my sister used to use one. I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. Well, there was something bad there, and it would do similar things. We would get shoved, pushed, scratched. Her house was horrible. You could never get any sleep. I mean, it was like that. And as we got older and moved on, she lived out of town. We lived apart and, you know, really didn't have it that kind of thing going on, but actually she moved back to Hillsboro right about the time this bad thing come to my house. So I didn't know if it was had anything to do with what we experienced before and since we were hanging out together again, I don't know. And she had experiences after she moved away? She said, well, we both would here and there, but it was nothing like when we were younger and hanging out together. And it was very similar, which I don't know, maybe all negative entities is similar, but it liked to pick on my daughter the worst. And she was a teenager, and it liked, loved it when we were teenagers to pick on us. And if my daughter would have girlfriends over, oh my God, it, it really tormented them. Yeah, yeah. And my daughter is the only girl um, between me and my sister-in-law because she has all boys. So she is, you know, related to both of us. So I always wondered if it was the same thing. It may explain why it would target her. Like I said, honestly, within the week before, it certainly did not help. But it actually was there before you guys did that. Yeah. So. And I take it you got rid of the two boys? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But the filming, I, I, don't, I haven't seen the show. I will not see it. I'm going to watch it with everybody else. We don't get to see it ahead of time, although they said they'll send us a DVD afterwards. So I'm curious to see what they did with everything. I know they dramatize and the creative editing. Exactly. I will be glad to come back and tell they you. Take liberties. Yeah, they do. I will be glad to come back and tell you okay, how great. everything well, went. So I hope you join us every month. Come back. Did they, great, great bunch of people. Did they trash your house? Well, they didn't trash it, but they were really good about saying we're going to move this 
this and that, and we'll move it right back. And no, I, I'm putting everything back. Yeah. outside in a halter top in December filming, you know, for continuity. Yeah. So, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it's fascinating. I can't wait yes. to see it. Me too. <laughs> I had the chance to talk with David Pickle, who shared with me his experiences living in a haunted house in Canton. David Pickle is going to tell us about his experiences living in a haunted house. <laughs> tell me stories. Well, it actually started, maybe I should give you a little background first. Please do. The, the building that we own was a grocery store built in the early 1900s. Um, as I was growing up, it was run by two sisters, older ladies, neither one of them ever got married. They were pillars of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is this in Canton? In Canton, okay. yes. Um, one of the sisters died. I owned a photography studio up the street. One of the sisters had passed away, and um, I offered to buy the building from the other sister at that time, and she didn't want to sell it. Um, eventually, she had to go to a nursing home, and their estate agreed to sell me both the, the, the building and the house they lived into next door. Oh. Um, so I owned what was it, the grocery store had closed in like 1986, I believe. Uh, one of the sisters was still living in the house next door when she when she left to go to a nursing home. I purchased the property. Uh, was planning on using the house as a rental property. So I was in upgrading some things, and and occasionally you would be in there late at night by yourself, and you'd hear noises, and and didn't really think too much about it. One night I did uh, um, actually hear footsteps upstairs, like somebody had walked across the room. Um, I was concerned enough because the house was empty that somebody had snuck in, and when I came in, they were trying to get out. Went upstairs, there was nobody there. Hmm. Um, prior to that, I had been down, like I say, my studio is about a half a block away. Um, I had gone down to mow the grass around the, what was the grocery store, and I'd left a sign on the door at my, my other business that said, I'm down the street, if you need me, come get me. And you know you get that feeling that somebody's watching you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I was mowing the grass, and as I turned around, standing on the back steps of the grocery store building, was and I only saw her for an instant, was a lady in a blue flowered dress. Um, that was my first experience. Um, and I told my wife, I said, I think I saw Katie. Katie and Tori Petrovich were their, were their names. I said, I think I saw Katie's ghost today. And my wife and I got to talking about it, and a few nights later, she woke up screaming. I was still downstairs. I went up to find out what was going on, and she had woken up with a lady standing over her swinging her fists. Um, oh, Lord. And I said, 
what was she wearing? And she said she was wearing a blue dress. And I said, that's the same person I saw. That was right after we had bought the property. Oh, my. Uh, now, was this the first sister that passed on? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, I didn't think too much about it. We, we bought that property in 1996, let it sit empty for several years, trying to decide what we were going to do with it. I just didn't want the building to get torn down. Mm. Um, it was a beautiful piece of property. Had a lot of history in Canton with the two ladies. Um, I was just I was fortunate to get a, a good deal on it when they sold it, and uh, eventually in 2006 we opened an ice cream shop, and, which we've closed since then. Huh. But anyway, um, about a week into our ice cream shop, I was over in this area doing some shopping for the store, and one of my employees called and said, "You need to come back as soon as possible and look at this ice cream." They wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Um, I thought maybe the freezer went out, the ice cream was melting, you know, what's going on with the ice cream? Well, when I got back, the, the freezer was fine, the ice cream was fine, but they had covered up one bucket of the ice cream. It came in three-gallon buckets, and in the bottom you could see the initials K and a T, um, which just completely freaked out the girls that worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure at that time I'm thinking, well, it's just a coincidence. They were scraping on the bottom of the, the bucket, you know, and it just came out that way. Oh, okay. Um, but they were convinced it was a sign of some kind. <laughs> wow. And then not long after the time I saw the, and I'm kind of bouncing around because I can't remember the oh, exact timeline, but I, w I have a koi pond in the back. Of the, right after I bought the property, I built a koi pond in the back mm. of the property, and I was out there one night um, trimming around the koi pond. And like I said before, you, know, you get that feeling somebody's watching you. And I kept looking around, looking around. It was almost dusk about the time it is now. Okay. And uh, I actually felt somebody come up and tap me on the shoulder. Oh. Which really freaked me out. Yeah. Um, so th at that point, I'm pretty convinced we have a ghost. At that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, Katie, come up. She's a very nice lady. She knows I'm taking care of the property. She just patted me on the shoulder and said, you're doing a nice job. Well, that's quite um, a switch from <laughs> the standing over your wife with her fist raised. Yeah, that was the only, the only weird occurrence is... My wife said she woke up with a, with a lady in a blue dress swinging her fists at her, so we didn't huh. know exactly what was going on there. Hmm. Um, not long after we opened the ice cream shop, um, we were almost ready to close, and myself and a couple of my employees were sitting, by one, sitting around one of the tables, and I, I don't know if it's just me or what it is, but I can always tell when Katie was in the room. Okay. And a shadow went between us across the table, just like we're sitting here, and this shadow went by. And I thought somebody had walked in the room behind me, and I turned to look, and one of my employees said, what are you looking at? <laughs> and I said, you didn't see that shadow go by? No. And I said, I'm pretty sure Katie's in here. Oh. Well, a couple of minutes later, they, the other employee, the employees left, and I was in there by myself about 7 o'clock at night, um, just doing the book work. Mm -hmm. And it used to be a grocery store, and this is kind of how I come up with this theory. Just as plain as day, it was like somebody dropped a can of peas or you know a can good mm -hmm. and it rolled across the floor Ooh. and I was like well, that, what fell off the counter yeah um, at that point I pretty much convinced myself that sometimes when Katie would show up she didn't see what I saw she uh -huh. saw the grocery store okay because where it dropped was where they used to keep the canned goods and she was in there stocking shelves and dropped one of them oh. and I mean it literally rolled across the floor and spooked me um, and so I left. you heard this I actually heard it. it didn't see anything okay. but I heard something fall on the floor and roll across the floor wow and that's a really distinctive sound oh yeah. yeah I mean it was like I said it was like somebody dropped a can of corn and rolled it across the floor yeah um, and like I say that's when I decided that that uh, Katie saw it as a grocery store sometimes when she came in sure um, 
and there had been instances like I had an employee that was working in the kitchen. He saw an elderly lady come in the back door. Um, he said he waited 10 or 15 minutes for an order to come back. Nobody brought anything back. He went out front and there was nobody there. Just <laughs> just the employee working out front. Mm -hmm. And it was shortly after he had started working, and I said, what was she wearing? He said, a blue dress. And I said, Katie walked <laughs> in the back door, checked him out, and then left. Uh -huh. Since then, we've we've closed our ice cream shop, and we've... we've uh, added on to it and we actually live there now that the, what used to be the grocery store is now our living room okay um, and then we added you know some addition bedrooms and things like that on the back and uh, we thought once Tori the sister died about three years ago we hadn't seen the ghost at all we hadn't heard her and you know I pretty much figured Katie was w waiting around waiting for her sister and now they're both gone you know, mm -hmm. and we don't hear from her but since we've moved into the house um, I've seen Faces in the doorway. There's a small do entryway between the screen door and the main door. There's a. It's about four feet maybe. Mm -hmm. And I've heard at least twice the screen door open, and nobody was there. Which I first contributed to the wind. Mm -hmm. Second time, I actually saw somebody standing there, and when I went to open the door, there was nobody there. Oh. So I think she was just standing in the doorway. It was raining outside. I guess she wanted to get out of the rain. <laughs> there you go. But you know, I occasionally will will. Uh, catch movement out of the corner of my eye, just a flash of blue going by. Um, my wife and my daughter have both heard dishes rattling in the in the kitchen when mm -hmm. nobody's in there. Um, we have a, and I haven't heard it for a long time, but we have a, a battery-operated ice cream scoop that when you shake it, it goes, ice cream, ding, 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 ding. Cool. And we, when we had the ice cream shop open, it was in a drawer, and the, I mean, the batteries were dead enough, you had to really shake it to make it work. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, nobody would be anywhere near this drawer, and it would go, ding a ling a ling ice cream. <laughs> and I mean, the batteries were almost dead. Right. And it would just make that noise, and nobody <gasps> could ever explain it. But, um, you know, we feel, yeah, she's a ghost, but she's a friendly ghost. I mean, she was well-liked as a live person, and we oh, hope good. she stops by once in a while. So Splendid. You know, it's a little freaky sometimes. But... <laughs> but uh, Quite a bit, you know. My my wife and my daughter, who still lives with us, don't see it much. But I'll be sitting in the living room by myself a lot of times, and I'll just catch that that something went by, mm -hmm. just a glimpse of somebody wandered by just for a second, you know. And I'll turn and look, and there's nobody there. Oh, cool. That's pretty much. I mean, from beginning to end, you know. We, like I say, they'd lived there all their lives in the house next door. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, the house burned down. We had oh. we had an accident. And, had a major fire, mm. um, but it was mostly in the grocery store where we where we encountered. You know, like I say, I was the one. I'm the one that seems to be most receptive to it for some reason. But okay. The hair on the back of your neck stands up. <laughs> it's like, yeah. You know, especially that time when I heard the can of corn. It was like, I mean, as soon as I saw that shadow walk by, I was like, something's going on. Katie's in here. I can tell. Mm -hmm. And then I'm in there all by myself, and she drops something. <laughs> go, well, you think you know what? I think it's time to go home. <laughs> that is fascinating, and it's really neat that I, I I agree with your theory that perhaps she is seeing something entirely mm -hmm. different. She's seeing what she's used to, and it's really fascinating that she drops something, and in her reality, it kind of crossed over into yeah. yours. I mean, it was so. Pronounced. I mean, I'm sitting clear across. There's nobody in the building, and the, where I heard it was clear across the room. And it's just like you dropped a can good, and it rolled across the floor. And I was like, "Wow!" I mean, it was enough 
to me that I got up to see that you know that the wind blow something off or uh-huh. you know, what was it? But I mean, all the door, doors and windows are closed. I mean, I'm locked in there when I go in there by myself. You know, right. back then I locked the door because there was money involved and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was pronounced enough that I was like, wow, what was that? And, <laughs> and when there was nothing there, it was like, okay, Katie's in here, and this is what she's doing. Wow. This spring, I attended a paranormal convention in the Quad Cities. I got to chat with a couple of people about their experiences. Uh, I'm at the uh, Quad Cities Psychic and Paranormal Conference, and I'm speaking with... Sandy Hintz. Sandy Hintz. Okay, she's going to tell me stories about the ghost she lives with. Lived. Lived. Okay. Yeah, um, it was up at Otter Creek, Iowa, uh, which is um, south of Dubuque. It was on a dead-end road three miles from the nearest neighbor, and we called him Uncle Mort. Now, Uncle Mort was a practical joker. Okay. And he would... We had this attic where I kept... It was cold. It wasn't finished. And we kept potatoes and onions and stuff there. And I would go there to get something for supper, and I'd turn on the light, and then I'd turn it off, and I'd get up and... Well, I had both of my first children in that house. And... um, I'd go out to go to the bathroom. It's a long journey to the bathroom. And the light would be on. (laughs) And it was like, did I forget to turn that light off or didn't I? And there was a door over the uh, cupboard, over this refrigerator, that would be open all the time. So I'd stop around on the floor to see if I could make that door come open. Sure. Um, We lived in a house that had the basement under the house. Okay. And at night, we had this cat that we put in the basement. And it would go down so far, and then the hair on the back would stand up, and it would start hissing, and our little dog would start barking, and then we'd say something like, Uncle Mort, get out of there, and then they'd proceed down the basement. Now, my ex-husband, he, I'd go to bed, and he would lay on the couch and watch television, and one night he was watching television, out of the corner of his eye, he could see the rocking chair rocking, and every time he would put the he was reading the paper. He put the paper down, look, it would stop. <laughs> so, and then it would start up again, you know, out of the corner of his eye. So, um, one time he went real fast and did two more little jaunts before it stopped. He said, job, you know. <laughs> so, you know, he wasn't malicious, he, but he would put the, now horses, we had horses. Horses do not pull a gate towards them. They will push to get out. Sure, yeah. Well, we had this area around the silo that the gate had to be pulled shut. The horses would be put in there, and in the morning they'd be out. Oh! party, and uh, we Ouija, and asked him if he was going to come, Uh and he, so at this precise moment, we had candles, and the candle, the light went almost off, and then very bright, and then back to normal. (laughs) This is, those are some of the things that happened. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with me. I really appreciate it. He's not an evil one, but since then, I don't need you. It, it scares me because I know you can get a bad one oh, yeah. as well as a good one. And I won't have anything to do with Ouija's anymore after that. Yeah, so. it's just too but, creepy. And I did say to him, hey, Uncle Mort, you're going to have to quit or I'm going to have a miscarriage. And he did until my child was born. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, 
talking to Devonda. Yes. Okay. She is going to tell me stories of Mississippi. Ghost stories of Mississippi. Okay. When um, when I was about uh, four and five, my mom would always take us summer vacations to Mississippi because that's where she grew up in Mississippi. And uh, every time we would go there, <laughs> my mom always would want someone to sleep in the bed with her. She was scared. Okay. <laughs> and um, one night, I was about four or five. I can't remember, but um, I was laying in the bed next to my cousin, and for some reason, I couldn't sleep. So I was peeking through the living room door, through the door crack, and um, in those days they kept their doors open at night. Okay. And uh, I seen a figure, man figure, walk right through the screen door. <laughs> and then he sat down on the couch and he put his hands on his knees and he looked towards that room that I was in. <laughs> and I screamed, there's a man in the house, there's a man in the house. Yeah. And uh, my uncle, uh, one of my uncles got up and uh, turned on the light in the living room and the man was gone. Oh. Um, learning later on, um, I didn't say anything to my mom, but learning later on, it was my uncle. Uncle, and I had I described exactly what he looked like and what he was wearing, and yeah. he was actually buried in that suit that I seen him in. Oh, and my no. mom said that I never met him before. She never took me to his funeral, and there's no way I would know that. Oh, yeah. And uh, then on a different night. <laughs> I 
was trying to get back in the bed, but that person would not let me back in. Oh, man. And uh, finally, I got back in. But uh, later on, my mom told me that it was probably my uncle that had passed away. I don't know why he would prevent me from getting back in the bed, though. Yeah. So that would it could have it could have been somebody else. Yeah. Or maybe there was like a spider in the bed, and he didn't want you crawling into the bed. <laughs> I, I reached for stuff. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, you know, and I. Some reason know. he didn't want you back in the bed at that point. In time. Yeah. And my mom said that things used to happen in that house when she was growing up, and she sometimes thought that it could be um, like they had her grandmother's uh, rocking chair, and um, it would rock sometimes. Oh wow! Yeah. And um, uh, and then um, there was another time on a different adventure when we had went back uh, down to Mississippi and uh, coming up the road there was this little house well I thought it was a house and it was actually a cotton house for picking cotton and I said oh my goodness I said who is that standing in that house window and my mom goes that's a cotton house nobody lives there <laughs> and, um, yeah, we flew so fast up that road. My mom's boyfriend did. He put the pedal to the metal. <laughs> All you could see was dust behind us. But, um, and so anyways, that's, that's about three stories. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. All right, cool. That evening, I sat with my friends Val and Spewey at an outdoor cafe, and Val told me stories of her childhood experiences. My, um, my parents bought the land that they built their house on, mm-hmm. and it was a new house built on top of an old house. And what we found out was they didn't do everything that they were supposed to do when they removed the old house, so the boiler uh, is still down there. And, uh, you know, they didn't remove the old foundation. They didn't do all of that. It's uh, And I don't know much about the house that was there. I know my mother babysat over there, and she didn't always like it. And it was kind of run with rodents, and they freaked her out. And, yeah. Yeah. But, um, so... We grew up in this new house that was haunted. <laughs> Whether it was the the land or the location, whatever it was, it, it was my my sister definitely knew it. I knew it. My dad was aware of it. There was always um, always a feeling of when you walked up the steps of making sure you looked behind you, mm-hmm. um, and. I remember having a, a pattern, like if I were going downstairs and it was dark and the other ha- light house, house, the house's lights were off, I would light a light and go down and turn a light on and go back up and, uh-huh. and have this so that I wasn't in the dark except for at the very end when I could you know, just run to my room. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was always something that... 
I don't know what my brother's experience was with it, but I know that my sister and I were very aware, and my dad said, yeah, you can always feel like you need to look behind yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, just to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was one one particular night. My we all, a room that my sister and I had shared. Um, when we were there, we, we very often put our dolls in the closet, and because we didn't want them watching us, there was that. It was. <laughs> I don't blame you a bit. You know, like did you see their eyes movie? Yeah, just, just put them in the closet. Close the closet. Well, when I left... I am right there with you with the dolls, I'll tell you what. (laughs) A little automatonophobia came, I think, from that. But um, we, at one point when I was older, I went to the downstairs room, which was really kind of cool for me and also really awful because the downstairs was where the feelings were kind of worse. Ah, okay. <laughs> but my sister being upstairs then took to blocking the closet. Mm. She she didn't, didn't want to use it for anything. At night, she would put stuff in front of it. Mm. Um, it be, actually became more frightening for her being alone, and sometimes she would even, I would find her, and she would be in my bed. Aww. And she, so she would brave the worst part of the house <laughs> to get out of her room. Oh, man. Um, she older than you? She younger, younger yeah. by almost two years. Um, there was one night that in her room, and she was kind of awake and had done her usual thing and piled stuff in front of the closet. That she heard a knocking from inside the closet, kind of a banging, and more than a knocking, just sort of oh, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> And so she did what you do when you're a kid, and she freaked out, and she got up, and she ran into my parents' room, which was right next door, and my parents, my, my father got up, and that was kind of his his department. Yeah. Um, and he was trying to soothe her and calm her down, and, and you know, honey, you're having a dream, you know, there, there's, there's nothing there everything's okay and just kind of calming her down and she's no no dad I it, it was really there it was really there oh, you know it's probably you know you probably woke up from a dream and it was just really real for you and and as he was soothing her and trying to quiet her he heard the bang 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 <laughs> <laughs> which gave him pause <laughs> um being a new house and they had they had been involved in the in the design of it. You know, they they looked at the blueprints and and uh, so he he got out the blueprints, thinking, well, surely, you know, perhaps there's just some kind of a vent or a register or something. You know, maybe yeah. a, um, there was nothing there. <laughs> I mean, well, and also it kind of made the door shake. Oh, geez. Yeah. So I mean, it was it was a pretty pretty weak reach to go for the blueprints. <laughs> And then, you know, the other first reaction, like the immediate reaction, is go and make sure that uh, my brother's room was on the other side of that. Just make sure that he wasn't doing something. Well, he was even a couple of years younger still. Mm-hmm. And he was unconscious. I mean, was, when, he, when he slept, he didn't move. Uh-huh. So that was... Uh, there was nothing that he could find that could determine that there was anything other there other than what it was very likely and 
um, you know, <laughs> which said quite plainly, it's probably a poltergeist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with all the fear that uh, she and I had in that space and in that place, rather, you know, gave it enough material to feed on for long enough to kind of actually make actually noise. make some noise oh. <laughs> uh, that was the last of that particular type of incident first and last that I was aware of but she had uh, later years in conversation said that it, it seemed to have followed her mm. and it wasn't just at the house anymore she'd moved and it wasn't as aggressive I don't know, and, and maybe it was because she wasn't quite as afraid, but she thought it was the same kind of thing, and mm-hmm. so she would see doors move no. um, around her, and and again the closet. She's she couldn't keep a closet door closed. Oh wow! She tried. She'd close it. She'd latch it because it was one of the old closets that actually had the doorknob and the yeah. and, and the latch. And she'd wake up and it was open. <laughs> and that, that went on for quite a while, too. And I think she eventually just kind of got used to it. But she also didn't like to talk about it because she was afraid to talk about it, that it would get, you know, more more, more attention, more, yeah. you know. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that's my sister's story with that, what I know of it. Mm-hmm. In my own um, boy, it was just, it was kind of frightening knowing that there were other people around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether whether or not it was, uh, there, there was an, uh, there was always that kind of look behind you awful feeling that you got that, that seemed like it was more malevolent. But there were also really casual entities around as well. Like, mm. they're just around and rude. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you, you you want to take some solace in having some space where nobody else is, like your bedroom and oh, yeah. uh, or the, the the hall to the bathroom, yeah. and and to know that you're not just being loomed around. Mm. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot that I could do to. I, my room got to be better after a fashion, but um, but yeah, it was just. It was uncomfortable. Um, it was kind of frightening, I suppose, uh, mm. as, as a child. And nowadays, I see things like that and I'm rather acclimated to, no, like, uh, <laughs> 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 all right, well, you know, you're not doing anything, and then that's okay as long as you're not doing anything. Yeah. But yeah, I remember many, uh, many a times having to wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and... Uh, actually seeing um, the form of uh, of an individual kind of in shadow around you know it was already dark but it was darker there sure and um, and not and holding it for as long as I possibly could <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like is there any other way out of this and, and um, you know maybe if I just go to sleep I will not have to do it until morning (laughs) (laughs) and that never works (laughs) no I remember uh, one night in particular where I I really just I was at my end and I'm shouted down the hall I really have to go to the bathroom I have to go and if you don't move I'm gonna go right through you (laughs) and I did (laughs) 
Yeah, that was kind of weird too. What was, what was that like? Um, Did you feel anything as you passed through? Well, I felt kind of scared. Ah. I mean, I, you really don't know if you walk right through somebody like that. <laughs> um, I don't remember. I, I guess, I guess I remember feeling kind of tingly. I don't, and that's. But it could have also been an expectation or mm. um, a defensive. I'm, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I just did something weird. Yeah, that's about as weird as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> it was necessary. Yeah. <laughs> when you gotta go. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So that was, uh, and it, again, you wouldn't think with a, a brand new house yeah. that you would you would get as much of that type of thing. But it was, we go back now, and it's better. But there's still a little bit of that, not not as much, and there's not as much feeding it. Mm. And um, you know, there's there's no little kids to get all worked up about I it. I was gonna ask. I mean, do you think it's less because you're not? freaked out little kids anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think it's probably a combination of being less because um, we're older and we're not as afraid of that. We you know, certainly grew up with it enough that we don't have um, the newness or the, or the childishness about the space. It's familiar space. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the other thing is because we're not so scared, we're not so feeding of whatever the, you know, whatever the situation is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, <laughs> it was definitely an experience growing up there. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this peek into a few haunted houses. Please join me next time when we go camping in the wilds of Missouri and watch zombie movies. Until then, keep an eye out for specters, spirits, and spooks whenever you go lights out. Thank you, Sylvia Schultz. This evening's fiction will be Not the Worst of Sins by Alan Baxter. Tales of Terrify actually has several of his stories narrated and ready to go. So when I asked him, which of these stories would you like for us to put out the gate first? He answered, not the worst of sins, which was the one I was hoping he wouldn't say. Why? Because I had narrated it before taking on hosting duties. It does seem sort of vain to be the host of the show and pick my own stories to air. But he's the author, and we'll give him what he wants. It's a great story with a nice Western feel to it. Alan Baxter is a British-Australian author who writes dark fantasy, horror, and sci-fi. He rides a motorcycle and loves his dog. He also teaches Kung Fu. He is the author of the dark urban fantasy trilogy Bound, Obsidian, and Abduction, the Alex Kane series, published by Harper Voyager Australia, and the dark urban fantasy duology Realm Shift and Mage Sign, the Balance 1 and 2, from Griffinwood Press. He co-authored the short horror novel Dark Right with David Wood, Alan also writes short fiction with more than 50 stories published in a variety of journals and anthologies in Australia, the U.S., the U.K., and France. His short fiction has appeared in Fantasy and Science Fiction, forthcoming, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Daily Science Fiction, Postscripts, and Midnight Echo, among many others. 
and more than 20 anthologies, including the year's best Australian fantasy and horror, 2010 and 2012. Allen also writes narrative arcs and dialogue for video games and wrote the popular writer's resource, Write the Fight Right, a short ebook about writing convincing fight scenes. He has twice been a finalist in the Ditmar Awards. Allen is represented by literary agent Alex Adsit of Alex Adsit Publishing Services. As well as fiction, Allen is a freelance writer penning reviews, feature articles, and opinion. He's a contributing editor and co-founder at 13 O'Clock, Australian Dark Fiction News and Reviews, and co-hosts AuthorCast, a thriller and genre fiction podcast. He's a member of the Australian Horror Writers Association, International Thrillers Writers, the Canberra Speculative Fiction Guild, Australian Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association, and a full active member of the Horror Writers Association. Alan is Director and Chief Instructor of the Illawarra Kung Fu Academy. He lives among dairy paddocks on the beautiful south coast of NSW, Australia, with his wife, son, dog, and cat. Read extracts from his novels, a novella, and short stories at his website, www.warriorscribe.com, or find him on Twitter, at Alan Baxter, and Facebook. Feel free to tell him what you think about anything. And now, from the darkest, dustiest plains of the West, not the worst of sins. Staring up at the stars, I hear the footsteps with plenty time to spare. Two sets, trying to sneak around behind in the dark beyond the glow of my dying fire. Graham Masters shimmers into view and opens his mouth to warn me, but I just nod and slip my pistol from its holster. So many times, desperate people will try their luck on a hapless traveler. It ain't the first time for me, won't be the last. As the steps crunch softly closer, behind the scrubby, chalky, pale, chaparral brush, I turn up onto one knee and fire a shot. There's a howl and the pounding of one set of feet. Cowardly bastard ran away and left his friend to his fate. Not so much a friend anymore. I ain't low. He should only be wounded. Unless he was crouching, I suppose. His ragged breath and sobbing mark him out easy. I wander over, pistol resting ready along my thigh. Jesus, he's barely a teenager, not a hint of whiskers on his chin. What the fuck are you doing? I ask. Master stands beside me, shaking his head, unseen by the boy. The kid's holding hands to his gut. Must have been crouching after all. You killed me, mister. What are you doing creeping up on honest folk in the dead of night? Just looking for some justice in the world. Is that right? I turn around and walk away. Poor dumb child. Grandmaster says, and I nod. You've done killed me, the kid cries out again, but we ignore him and lay down by the fire. I ignore the discomfort deep in my gut, too. He gasps and sobs for a good hour before his breath hitches, and he bleeds out. I wake in the darkness with a scream and think I've been dreaming, until I see Masters fighting with the spectral figures. He's shouting and cursing, and I can't make things out too clearly, what with the sleep in my eyes and mind. Masters is grabbing at the ghosts as they claw and scratch, trying to get past him to me. Waves of coldness waft over them. I can smell frosty ground, but it ain't that late in the year yet. My heart hammers and I start to get up. Master snarls over his shoulder. Sleep, boy. Don't give them the power of your attention. 
They've got by him before, and when they claw at me, they're so cold it burns. It's hard to ignore the fight. Cursing the whimper in my breath, I turn my face to the earth and squeeze my eyes tight shut. Every night now it's the same, every time getting worse. Pressing my hands over my ears to mask the shouts. I don't know how long before it's over, but eventually sleep takes me. Dawn smudges the horizon pale pink and blue as I kick up the embers and set the pot to boiling for some coffee. Again, last night, I say to the flickering form beside me, Ain't nothing for you to worry about. They seemed angry. Masters turns a hard face to me. Ain't they always, boy? Ain't I always kept them off you? Not always, no, but I let it drop. Masters being mad at me all day can be worse than ghosts trying to take me away at night. The buildings stand like sentinels in the early sunlight. The town is little more than a crossroads, too small to even have a name. The town is little more than a crossroads, too small to even have a name by the look of it. I can relate to that. Two streets mark out the cardinal directions lined with stores and homes made of roughly cut wood, and more properties spread out behind them. People in dusty clothes walk in the shade of awnings, occasionally casting me suspicious glances. They quickly look away if I catch their eye. I'll ask around and see if any of our leads are good ones. My daddy's had 18 years of getting lost, having fucked off right before I was born, but a cur like him don't stay hidden for long. He ain't dumb, uses a bunch of aliases, but he did business with Grand Masters not so long ago, so we know all of Pa's fake names. At least the ones he was using before he turned on his own partner. Masters has never told me what their business was, but it can't have been friendly if it caused my son-of-a-bitch father to leave Grand Masters a ghost. I guess Dad thinks moving from state to state will mean he never crosses paths with his past. We aim to prove him wrong in that assumption and put things to rights. Grand Masters for his own reasons, and me for Mama and myself. The main street is swirling in dust from wagon wheels and horses' hooves as I tie up old Jack by the saloon. He buries his nose in the water trough, sucking and sucking like he's never had a drink in his life. He's a damn good horse, honest and gentle, and he means the world to me, even if his chestnut-brown hide is scraggly and his ribs show through. My gun and my saddle are pretty much all I have beside Jack. And Grand Masters, I suppose, but he ain't an actual thing regardless of how helpful he's been. It only takes about a half a minute in the saloon to know the barkeep there ain't going to be any use. He's never heard the names I give him. As I step back outside, a man walks towards me, jaw working as he chews tobacco and I see the sun glinting off his badge, attitude drifting out from under the brim of his dirty gray hat. New in town, eh? He says, voice like gravel. He seems nervous. I nod, choosing not to answer such a dumb question with words. Masters besides me says, Fuck him. There's an uncomfortable silence that I get the impression I ought to fill. I ain't planning on starting any trouble here, Sheriff. He looks me up and down, tips his hat back a little. You after something specific? Just passing through. That right? I smile at him, try to ease his tension some. I'm on the trail of a man, as it happens, so maybe you could help me out. Is that so? Who you looking for? The man uses different names. Danny Calhoun, sometimes. Or Seth Cooper. Maybe Frank Gates. The sheriff's chewing stops dead. He sniffs and spits. Pretty damn bold, I gotta say. Pretty goddamn bold. He slips his gun from his hip and gestures with it. This way, kid. What the hell? I ain't done nothing. 
The sheriff barks a laugh. <laughs> right? There's some kind of a mistake here. I ain't done nothing wrong. Why don't you come along quietly and we'll sort all this out? I cast a desperate glance at Masters and his face is pure fury. Do as he says, he hisses. He'll shoot you down in an instant out here. Go with him and we'll find a way free. I follow the sheriff toward the jailhouse, my gut churning as I wonder just what the hell Masters can do to get me out. The tiny cell smells of mildew and something less pleasant. It's dim inside, with sacking over the one small barred window high in the wall blocking out the fresh air and sunlight. The shackles hang heavy against my wrists, a length of chain swinging between them. I keep hearing talk of a gallows and how they finally got someone they've been after, and I can't believe they think that's me. Masters keeps assuring me he'll sort it out, and I have to trust him. I never had anyone to trust before, and I don't think I'll ever get used to it. But I'm doubting him more by the second. The cell door is heavy and new-looking. A priest comes walking along beside the sheriff, grinning like a fox. His hair is lank and streaked gray, hanging in rat tails over his ears and brow. I suggest you have a chat with this man, the sheriff says to me. He pulls out a bunch of keys and opens my cell door. The priest steps in, still grinning. His cheeks sallow flaps over his sagging mouth of broken yellow teeth. What the hell is he so damn happy about? I don't need no priest, I say. The sheriff ignores me. You gonna be okay with him, father? Oh yes, don't worry about me. I'd much rather keep the cell locked than you outside it. The preacher shakes his head, still smiling. We'll be fine. The sheriff nods. I won't lock you in with him, but that door there will stay bolted. He points down the hall to the heavy wooden door between the cells and the front office. The only way out. You knock on that door when you need to come out. He hands the holy man a six-shooter. If he tries to follow you, even puts one toe out of that cell, don't say anything. Just shoot him dead. The priest looks like he's going to protest, but the expression on the sheriff's face brooks no argument. He's vicious, father. Left two innocent corpses in his wake, and he ain't as clever as he thinks he is, leaving a trail of questions and murder. It was always going to catch up with him, eventually. Two corpses in my wake. I look across at Grand Masters, but he won't meet my eye. His face is a mix of embarrassment and rage. There's more than two corpses in my past, but I think I know the ones the sheriff was talking about. Masters knows them, too. With a shrug, the priest takes the gun and tucks it into the belt holding his black robes closed. He's just a boy, the holy man says, but I'm sure this gun will keep him calm while we talk. This is your last chance for any kind of redemption, the sheriff says to me. Don't fuck it up now. He walks away before I can protest and I'm left in an unlocked cell with an armed preacher. The wooden door to the office closes with a heavy thunk and I hear the bolt turn. Masters moves close to me, whispers, This is your chance. I'll make a distraction. You get past this maggot. Before I can answer or ask any questions, he's gone. What would you like to talk about? The priest says. Unsure what else to do, I start by asking him the names. No one I can remember, he says, kind of high-pitched. You sure? I say, deliberately loud, like my voice can push away the creep this guy gives me. Maybe I can check my donations book. I keep a note of all the generous souls who help the church. But really, you shouldn't be worrying about any of that stuff now. The preacher's eyes linger on me, slide up and down, and he smiles kind of crooked. Would you like to give something to the church, young man, before you move on to the next life? 
It might go down well with... You know, he nods upwards. I ain't got two pennies to rub together. Maybe you could give something else, fine-looking boy like you? He steps up, too close, his breath sweet-smelling like rotten fruit. A horse or a pig is all well and good, but it's not the same. Oh no, not the same at all. His eyes become suddenly hard, cold. Besides, you're already damned. I hear a commotion out front and the sheriff yelling. There's a gunshot somewhere and the sound of pounding feet. My fists drive the preacher's head back and he staggers away, scrabbling for the gun at his waist. I hit him again, two-handed, using the metal around my wrists instead of my knuckles. The preacher doesn't make a sound as blood floods his mouth and chin rushing from his crushed nostrils. Then he laughs, the unbelievable son of a bitch. Is that what you like? He says, high-pitched and breathless. He draws a gun from his belt, but I'm ready and slap it aside with the chain of the cuffs. The report is loud and the bullet bites splinters from the side of the cot. Now, he looks concerned. I hit him again and he goes down, tumbling over in a mess of blood and black robes. He comes up onto hands and knees. The gun wavers out in front of him. I grab it and twist it from his grip, hear his fingers snap. My ragged boot fetches him up under the chin and his rotten teeth crack and spin across the floor. I drop down on him and keep punching until my knuckles bleed and his twitching stops. Masters is right there. Come on, boy. The door at the end of the corridor is unlocked, and I don't have time to ask how. People are screaming in the streets, and the sheriff is firing shots into the air, yelling for calm. Whatever Masters did out here has the townsfolk well and truly spooked. Running outside, I see old Jack down the street, the only horse standing calm. I jump on, drag his reins off the rail, and pound out of town before the sheriff can realize I'm gone. There's a whole lot of nothing except wide open space and tumbleweeds between that last town and the next. I figured I'd do well to move along quickly, but I meant to buy food and fill my water back there. Now I'm pretty much out of both. The nights are getting colder, and a low fire does little to keep me warm, hungry as I am. My shirt is thick, but my denims are ragged. Masters has always worn his fancy suit and shiny shoes, but I guess a ghost has no concerns for weather and seasons. I'm going to need to find a coat and a lot more to eat. Quit your whining, Master says, even though I haven't complained. You can always eat your horse and walk. I ain't Jack. He's about the only friend I ever had. Master's anger is instant. That right? And what the fuck am I, boy? His hand whips out in a slap across my cheek. It's icy cold and stings something fierce, even as it passes right through. Only when he's really angry, he's told me before, can he affect physical things. I guess he was mad as hell in that sheriff's office. No wonder your daddy walked away from you, he says. He could see your weakness even before you were born. Fuck you, Grandmasters, I ain't weak, he sneers at me. Didn't I find you in the depths of your despair, boy? Cradling your crazy mama while she gibbered in her madness, holding a gun and sobbing your heart up? About to end it all? Fuck you, I say again. I can't meet his eye, so I stare at the shackles hanging off my skinny wrists instead. I was only 16. I was lost. My mama was, You're 18 now, boy, Master shouts. And you got me to thank for that. I don't know what to say, so I say nothing. Thinking about mama wasting away like a dead horse by the side of the road, eaten from the inside out by maggots. Except mama's being eaten up by memories. My good-for-nothing daddy left her pregnant, no money or family nearby. Dragged her out into the middle of nowhere to start a new life that fell apart before it began.
When I swelled her belly and my daddy's dumbass dream had turned to shit, he just walked away and she had to beg for everything. I was born in the dirt of the street and my mama was reviled by everyone around her. She was too fragile to exist like that and it slowly drove her mad. By the time I was five, I'd already had to grow up enough to look after her instead of the other way around, and that was all my daddy's fault. By the time I was 16, my mama had pretty much no mind left, and I was sick of it all. Masters is right that he found me in the depths of my despair, and he convinced me to put mama with the nuns and help him track down my daddy, seeing as we both had a score to settle. My daddy killed Grand Masters over a business deal gone bad, so Masters told me whatever their business might have been. He'd as good as killed my mama, and he'd ruined my life since before I even entered this unforgiving world. I took the chances Masters offered me, so I ought to be grateful. It's true he's teaching me to be strong, and I wonder if this is maybe what it's like to have a father. I'm trembling, but I tell myself it's the cold and the hunger, not fear or hatred. I was drawn to you, boy, because we share a common enemy. Your daddy ruined everything for me, fucking killed me and I'm burning with a vengeance, and didn't I light that fire in you? I nod, not looking at him. I can feel that furnace churning in my belly every second of every day. It only gets hotter when I think of poor Mama. I look across to the low fire towards the distant mesas standing like guardians of this desolate land. I'm one tiny person in a harsh and barren world. What chance do I really have of ever finding my hateful father? Now shoot the chain between those cuffs, boy, Master says. There's room to angle your pistol in there, and I'm about mad enough that I can probably help. Just be careful you don't blow your stupid hand off. I wake in the pitch dark, and something moves over me. A light of a sort, a glow. The fire is burned away to nothing but a gentle smear of orange in the night, and the cold is in my bones. As I blink awake, rubbing sleep from my eyes, the glow resolves into a face, then two. They lean over me, eyes wide and terrifying mouth stretched in silent screams. My heart races, my stomach turns to water, fingers rake like icicles across my face and throat, clutching at me, grasping. They drag a tiny sliver of my soul away with each touch. I see it like silvery smoke stretching out of me in ribbons, feel myself lessen every time. A distant wheezing howl escapes their wide mouths like cries of pain, but somehow triumphant. With a screech, Master swoops in. He grabs the things and hauls them off, and the fighting starts. Fighting down on my fear, I scramble away and load more wood to the fire, blowing through numb lips to bring the flames up again. I squint away as masters brawls with the things that tried to take me while I slept. A distant howl drags my attention. I look into the screaming face of one ghost, not distant at all. Masters is grappling with the other, throwing panicked looks at me over his shoulder. Don't you let it in, boy, he screams. Don't you give it form. The ghost reaches for me, its frosty hands dragging the very essence out of me. My mind slides, my vision blurs. I hear the far-off cries of masters as he's dragged away, fading as he goes. Swatting at the ghost, my hands slapping through frozen air, I get dizzy. Grandmasters! I cry, but there's no answer. I turn and stagger away, running and stumbling. No idea where I'm heading, just away, away in the morning. Surely, it's only minutes now before they finally got me. Masters is gone. I'm alone in the night. Don't you let it in, boy. You can't have me, I scream as I run. Icy claws rake my soul through my back. My spine arches like it's going to pop in a dozen places. You cannot have me. I howl again and keep running and running until my vision blurs and I fall. 
blackness sweeping in before I hit the ground. I wake shivering as a soft glow of dawn begins to brighten the horizon. Gray, lifeless scrub stretches away from me in every direction, as empty as my soul, as lifeless as my existence. I might be alive, but I ain't living, not really. I see movement in the velvet sky above me, and squint on the circling black shape of a vulture, looping around like an angel of death. It spirals slowly downward, joined by another. They land not twenty feet from me and hop from side to side, squawking at each other. I want to scare them away, but a part of me wonders, why should I bother? What's the point? There's a sound of hooves on the stony ground, and the big ugly birds flap angrily up and away. It's old Jack, and Masters walked beside him. They're gone. Master sits beside me, his face unreadable even in the low light. I thought they got you. I'm a ghost, you fucking idiot. I'm already dead. They nearly got me. But they didn't. Fuck them. You're haunted, boy. You know that. It's how I found you, after all. You let me in and gave me strength. Don't you let them in, too, and they'll stay weak. I guess. I don't believe a word of it. Next time, the time after, how much more is in me for them to take? Finish this business. Finish this business, Masters says. Get some peace of mind for you and your mama. And for me, they'll have less to hang on to. Really? Master stands over me, eyes dark and foreboding. Get up, you weak prick. I don't care anymore. Yes, you fucking do. Look. I followed his pointing finger and see a jackrabbit sitting on a mound of prairie not thirty yards away. Slow and quiet, Master says. The boom of my pistol in the cold air is staggering, and the jackrabbit's head is gone. It's well past noon when the silhouettes of a small town appear on the horizon. It gives me renewed strength, and I'm smiling as I ride down the main street that's lined with wooden buildings, brightly painted awnings, and fancy sign writing in the windows. I can see homesteads spreading out beyond the town, people working, wagons rolling. Hills swell up into mountains to the west. I tie old Jack to a post outside a saloon, give him a pat on his hot neck. I pull the heavy sleeves of my baggy shirt down to hide my new iron bracelets and walk in through the double swing doors. It's dim and cool inside, quiet and still. Dust motes dance in the early sunlight, shafting in between the slats of the shutters. A bald guy with a belly like a full sail is polishing glasses behind the bar, and a pretty young thing is sweeping up. I nod to the barman and watch the girl a while. She's young and slim, with a cascade of blonde hair and a glint in her eye. She holds my gaze for a second or two before looking back to her broom. What I would give to find a town someplace, settle down and get some work. Ooh, a pretty girl like that, and maybe get married, have some kids of my own. Just normal stuff, but this fire burns in me, and I can't do anything normal until it's out. And that's only going to happen when my daddy is brought to account for what he did to Mama and me. She'd have liked to live in a small town like this, I reckon. Far better than the nun sanatorium where she's lying now, mind broken and body withering away to sticks and dust. Help you? The barman calls out. I smile at him, friendly-like. I could use a good meal, (laughs) or even a bad one. I add with a laugh. He pushes his chin at the girl sweeping up, and she sets her broom aside and disappears out back. 
I pull up a stool, sit down, and put my ragged black hat on the bar beside me. There's a moment's uncomfortable silence as the barkeep measures me up and down. The girl returns with a tin plate holding some kind of stew and a hunk of bread. She hands it to me with a soft smile, almost like a secret. The gravy is thick like mud and cold from last night's cooking, but smells fantastic. The meat is mostly gristle and the bread stale, but I swallow down like it's the food of God, my belly aching at the sudden pressure it hasn't felt for too long. That jackrabbit kept me alive, but he was near as skinny as me. It feels like the first time I've eaten properly in weeks. I'm looking for someone, I tell the barkeep as I mop up with the last of the bread. He's immediately suspicious. That right? Give me a whiskey, just the cheap stuff. He nods, puts a glass on the counter, and fills it from a bottle without a label. I'm only drinking to be friendly, trade for the information he might have, but the sour burns nicely all the same. I put a couple of coins on the scratchy bar. Graham Masters stands beside me, unseen by the others. He tilts his head at the barman, impatient, fucking ghost. I'm looking for a fella goes by several names. Mind if I run him by you? The barman shrugs. All right, then. Danny Calhoun? He shakes his head. Seth Cooper? Shake. Frank Gates? This time there's a slight pause, and his eyes narrow just a bit before he shakes his head. Frank Gates? I ask again, one eyebrow raised. I said no, damn it. I ain't ever heard of no Frank Gates. The pretty young girl has stopped sweeping, watches us with a strange expression. Masters is virtually dancing on the spot. He's lying, he says to me, like it ain't obvious, even to the tables and chairs. Truth be told, I'm getting damn tired of this game, but my excitement rises, too, at this reaction. I nod and stand up, tip my hat. Much obliged, sir. Guess I'll move along and keep looking. The barman seems relieved and smiles at me. Good luck finding him. I turn to leave and walk slowly to the door, giving the barman plenty of time to pluck up the courage to ask the question that must be burning his lips to get out. Hey, stranger. There it is. I turn back. Yeah. Why are you looking for this fella anyway? You mean him harm? I laugh. Shit, no. We have history. We go way back. I'm just looking up an old friend. His brow creases, eyes narrowed again. He doesn't know what to make of that. I'm too young to be a pal of somebody my daddy's age. Eventually, he shrugs once more. Well, like I said, good luck. Thanks. The sun is beating down outside, making me squint. Back door or front, I ask Masters, almost invisible in the brightness. Surely the back, he says, vengeance clear in his tone. He's at least as hungry for that now as he was for money in his life, I reckon. That's what I thought. We stroll casually around the saloon, keeping to the shadows near the building walls, and peek around behind. Sure enough, the fat barkeep comes hurrying out, rolling up his apron and dropping it by the door as he waddles behind the other shops and slips away between them. I'm sure we're close. I'm so near the quarry I think I can almost smell the bastard. Don't lose him, Masters barks. I trot back around the front and turn the corner. It's easy to see the fat barman hurrying up the street. There's not that many people yet in a frontier town like this, but you can see the potential of the place. It's only going to get bigger like so many other we've seen. Masters says San Francisco is a city that takes hours to walk across, with huge buildings of rock and brick. I can't imagine a place like that. The barman shouts and waves and a young boy runs across the street to him. There's some frantic chatter and something changes hands, probably a coin, and the boy takes off north, out of town, like a rabbit running from a gunshot. 
Old Jack trots along happily, and I can see the young boy up ahead. There's a property on the hill, just a small farmhouse, and I think that's where he's headed until he jumps bareback onto a horse out front and takes off again. He gallops north, and I keep old Jack and Jack tailing him at a distance. There's no point in giving myself away now, I'm this close. The kid rides hard for a good hour, grubby white shirt billowing in the wind of his gallop as his bare feet swing at the horse's flanks. He heads into the hills and down a ravine with a river running along it. Masters is getting more agitated all the time, popping up and shouting at me about losing the kid. But it's hard to keep up and not give myself away when there's fuck all but the two of us out here. Sure enough, before we're a half mile into the narrow valley, I've lost all sight of the boy and his horse. I sit on old Jack and curse. Masters is furious. You were one useless fucking idiot, he yells. What now? I don't know. I say in a broken voice, it's going to be dark soon and the ghosts are coming back. Masters is getting worse at holding them away, and I can't see the fucking point anymore. Don't you sink into some useless funk, you prissy child, Masters says, his face an inch from mine even though I'm on horseback. You start searching. The ravine doesn't branch out, and it's getting deeper. If the kid came through, it's likely I can carry on and hopefully stumble across wherever he was headed. Follow the river and pray I find something before dark. It's slow going, picking along through the rock and scrub. Often we have to climb a steep bank and keep the river in mind by listening more than watching. We could go right by wherever the kid was headed and not even know it, but I don't tell Masters that. He's irate as hell all the time and only getting madder. I'm tired, hungry, and kind of scared, sagging in the saddle, when something pulls me up. Voices drifting from somewhere. I hold Jack in a clump of trees and let him drink at the river. Once he's safely tied, I have a drink myself. It's at least as cold and fresh as it looks. Going quiet and careful on foot, it's not long before a crackle of fire and the smell of cooking rumbles my stomach. There are men talking, not far away. I can see down into the camp, six canvas tents and a big cook fire. Somewhere in here is Frank Gates, a.k.a. Danny Calhoun, and Seth Cooper. I settled down to wait for night. Time to finish this. It's nice to sit by the river until the dusk turns dark. Graham Masters is impatient to get moving, but it's taken this long so it can wait a little longer. Caution is the key here, or I'm liable to blow it and waste everything. Masters has ever been eager to get on with it, and, if I'm honest, he's often been a fairly unreliable companion. He's caused me trouble more than once. But it's night, and I have a job to do. My heart's beating fast at the thought. I could finally be here. At that point in my life where I could make my bastard of a father pay and shuck this burden from my shoulders, tell my mama he's dead and buried, let her find some peace. Then maybe I'll go back to that last town and talk to the pretty girl in the bar. I creep down towards the tents. All prospector camps are like this. I've seen a few before. I hide in the shadows and watch as the men sit around the fire, eating and drinking and laughing, too loud. I wonder if it's to stem the disappointment of turning up nothing, or in celebration of the fact they've struck Yella and know they're going to be rich. Either way, it doesn't bother me. I'm going to kill my daddy whether he's rich or poor. Although pulling a few nuggets from the pockets of his corpse wouldn't be such a bad thing. The kid is curled up asleep under a big coat near the fire. There are four men, so I need to be careful. I don't want to end up in a fight with them all. I've honed some skills these recent years, but even I can't be sure I'd manage four on one. Masters is clear beside me in the darkness. He squints into the gloom and a smile splits his face. There he is, 
He points to one fella and my chest tightens. You sure? I ask. Masters nods without looking at me. Oh yeah. Really sure? I ask again, staring hard at him. He turns his glare to me. That's Frank Gates. We watch a while longer. Nothing happens except more eating and drinking and then the men start heading for their tents to bed early to get up with the dawn. I keep an eye on Gates, staring hard at the man who seated me for this world, who ruined my mama's life. He's a rangy bastard, tall and skinny like me, but his hair is dark black where mine is sandy brown. He's got a nose like an eagle's beak, and that ain't nothing like mine either. Nice to know I take after my mama more than this sack of shit. He wears good clothes, though they're dirty from prospecting, and his boots are finer than any I've ever owned. Son of a bitch. I start preparing for what I'm going to say to him, and I brace myself for the possibility that I won't have a chance to say anything. Ending him is the only important part of this. And he starts heading straight for us. I catch my breath, shuffle back against the rocks and scrub where I'm hiding. No time to move anywhere else. He walks right past me in the shadows, and I see his mean face. Eyes set close together, black stubble making his cheeks dark in the night. He seems in decent shape, but I don't reckon he's close to as strong as I am. He walks between some trees into the gloom, and I can't believe my luck. Creeping like a cat, I follow. Frank Gates, as he's calling himself, grunts and undoes his braces. He kicks a hole in the sandy ground, drops his britches and squats, elbows on his knees. Don't make a sound, I whisper as the cold steel of that sheriff's colt presses against the skin of his neck. He stiffens, but doesn't move. A muffled cry of fright escapes his lips, bitten off as soon as it starts. Pull up your britches and move forward. He complies. I can see his hand shaking as he buttons his fly. He stumbles ahead of me, my gun barrel pressed into the middle of his spine. What do you want? He whispers, his voice trembling with fear. You want money? Gold? Shut the fuck up, Frank Gates, I say quietly, pushing him away from the camp. That's what you're calling yourself now, right? That's my name right enough. Who are you? I'm the son you abandoned, you slimy piece of shit. What? The son of the woman you left pregnant, poverty-stricken, and a pariah. She couldn't take it. The ridicule, the rejection. She's a fragile bird, and you broke her mind, Frank Gates. Our lives, too. His shaking is visible all over, his knees knocking together, hands flapping by his sides. I don't know what you mean. I don't have a son. I have a wife and two daughters in San Francisco. That just makes me furious. Is that right? I almost yell. Treat them a lot better than you did Mama and me, do you? His voice is hitched with tears, sobbing like a little girl. I don't know what you mean. Turn around and face me, Gates. He stands there, back to me, shaking and sobbing. Turn your face to me, Pa. He turns slowly, hands raised. His face is twisted in fear, tears and snot shining in the darkness. I look around for Graham Masters, but he's nowhere to be seen. Surely he wants to see this. My own hand starts to shake. The excitement of the situation is getting to me. Fuck it, I can't put this off. Here and now you pay for what you did to us. The flash and bark of the pistol is massive in the silent darkness, and a rush rips through me. Frank Gates' chest gouts blood as he staggers over backwards, my shot right through his heart. He's dead before he hits the ground, and Masters comes running. Stop, he cries. It ain't him. I can't believe it, not again. I lost you in the trees, Masters says. I tried to catch up, but I couldn't find you. It ain't him. My euphoria drains away like rainwater on sun-parched earth. I'm shaking all over. I killed the wrong man, I yell at Grandmasters. Again! I'm sorry, it's so hard to tell. 
I'm a ghost. I don't see real things as well as you do. He sounds altogether too relaxed for my liking. You said you were sure, just like you did when we found Danny Calhoun and Seth Cooper. Something like a smile glimmers across Master's face, but it's hard to see in the shadows. I can hear voices shouting and people crashing through the brush. Those gossamer spectral haunts that dog me every night are lurking, reaching, groaning mouths wide in supplication. Are there three now? You have to go, Master says. Confusion fogs my brain. I killed another innocent man. Master's sudden grin is feral. Part of you likes it. What? He grabs my shirt, dragging icily at my flesh as his hand passes right through me. Come on, don't let them catch you. Is he laughing? I stumble over rough ground, heading back to where old Jack is tethered. My mind reels, my heart hammers. Keep looking, Grandmaster says. It's your turn now. You'll find him next time. I'm sure. There's no sincerity in his tone. I look at the ghost of my mentor in the darkness, and his expression is hard to read. My turn? Next time? He nods as I untie Jack and swing up into the saddle. There's a self-satisfied look about him like a man who's enjoyed his fill of a good meal. His eyes sparkle, and there are creases at the corners as he grins. It's your time, boy, Master says. Now you get to keep moving, keep looking for your damn pa, free as you like. Vengeance is a selfish business, and you better stay ahead of those nighttime ghouls. You sound like you ain't coming, I say, shivers racking through me. Masters just stands in the night, smiling at me. I can hear the other prospectors crashing closer. I need you to identify him, I say, and curse how scared my voice sounds. Masters leans his head back and laughs. Boy, I have no fucking idea who your daddy is. Never did. His words echo in my mind, and his laughter rings through the valley as I gallop away from the river and into the night. That was Not the Worst of Sins by Alan Baxter, read to you by, well, me. Usually we do a bio for the narrator, but I think I've already had enough time in the limelight for the evening. I'll just put a link to my personal page in the show notes and call that a day. That concludes our show, but before you find your bags and jackets, I wanted to give you the heads up that starting either next week or the week after will be recordings from a tribute to Lawrence Antaro by his friends. Stay tuned for that. Also, don't forget to send a bit of money our way at TalesToTerrify.com. And that will do it for us. Stay safe, keep cool in these waning days of summer, and come see us again next week. And pleasant dreams. Mm? Tales to Terrify is looking for an editor. And I thought that I would let the listeners know what does an editor for Tales to Terrify do? The primary duties are 
One, evaluate stories submitted to the podcast Gmail account for quality. Two, pair accepted stories with appropriate narrators. And three, maintain the show's Google Doc spreadsheet with status of stories. Just for the sake of clarity, this podcast is a labor of love, and no one gets paid, including the editor. For myself, the role took up about one afternoon a week. If you have interest in helping out the podcast or further questions about the specifics, please send me an email at tales to terrify at gmail.com.